Welcome to NeuroNoodles Neurofeedback Neuropsychology Podcast featuring tech legend Jay Gunkelman. He is the man who has read well over a half a million brain scans. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. The NeuroNoodle Podcast is supported by listeners and businesses just like you. Like our gold supporter, the 7th Annual Super Brain Summit at Bradley University, and our silver supporter, Mind Media. Join us at the 7th Annual Super Brain Summit at Bradley University Center for Collaborative Brain Research. It's featuring speaker Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor. She's the author of The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Our Love and Loss. If you want to get more information regarding registration, contact Gwen Hoarter. She's at G-H-O-W-A-R-T-E-R at bradley.edu or call her at 309-677-3900. If you want if you want more information regarding programming, you can contact Dr. Lori Russell Chapin herself at 309-677-3186 or email lar at bradley.edu. Mindmedia.com. Get the latest EEG and neurofeedback technology from mindmedia.com. Their semi-dry sensor cap is a wonder to see and their EEG amplifiers have been trusted in the field for decades. Their neurofeedback and QEEG courses will get you up to speed in no time. Visit mindmedia.com now. Not Dr. J. <laughs> What's that? Not, not Dr. J. <laughs> not Dr. J? Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, check, check J. I forgot. Oh, come on. <laughs> if Dr. J can play basketball and be called doctor. It's true. Jake Altman has read a, a gazillion brain scans. No, but I have to be uh, correcting that. Um, you can see the problem if there was a misunderstanding about it. Yeah, I have to do the same thing with regards to clinical stuff. Folks often want me to use yeah. diagnostic language or they, or they want to understand that. And I'm sort of, it, it, I mean, it's part of our, our, the way we educate, the way we frame what we do, our value proposition for our clients is providing education and agency, not diagnostic expertise. So I joke that yeah. when our clients find us, you know, we teach them to become experts instead of having to be the right expert, the next person who has yeah. the answer. We can transfer some of that to them so they can you know, go forward with it. I've always had the luxury of working along with a, a, a neurologist or electroencephalographers typically. Mm -hmm. And that, that's been very freeing, obviously. Um, you can call something what it is and not have to kind of work around um, and a diagnostic call with the credential as a cosine. So right. it, it, yeah. it worked yeah. really well for me. Um, Can I ask I, though, to what extent did you, I mean, you, you've been doing EEG um, and clinically EEG is a clinical field. How long have you been involved with EEG? Well, I had my first laboratory in 1972. So almost and, as long as I've been alive, you've been picking up brain signals yeah, professionally. But I, I played around with EEG amps and stuff in the, at university, at the North Dakota State University in Fargo. Go Bison, you know. Give <laughs> uh, <laughs> you the horns and all, you know. But um, uh, the, the, the state hospital in Jamestown basically mm -hmm. uh, gave us space and uh, uh, funding and we built our own amps. I mean, 1972, what neurofeedback amp could you buy? Yeah. <laughs> oh, How big was it? The, the Autogen had a zero cross detector, which couldn't see anything but the dominant frequency. It was a terrible amp. You know, it was, it, mm. you know, it had enough space inside the case to carry lunch, but it was, it was, um, but, but you, you couldn't really do real EEG with it. Mm. And, the state hospital had a big old grass model six, which wasn't mm -hmm. like current, current, uh, but it was still quite functional. Uh, so, we, we, you know, we had uh, some uh, interesting uh, uh, times, three years I ran that lab and then came out to California. And then I, uh, uh, after one year of making equipment and finding that you could go broke making equipment for people fast. Yeah. I, yeah. I, uh, I decided that the ser service end of the field always has need for service. So 
um, I looked, I got a job in the busiest EEG lab in the world in San Francisco. And over 100 a day, uh, a minimum day was 100 EEGs. Wow. And uh, they came in from over 400 hospitals across the U.S. off of satellite and through phone systems. And <laughs> so wow. 500,000 EEGs later, uh, as a that's calculated only 100 a day. And there were days we topped 200. But, sure. you know, just 100 a day makes for an easy calculation. So, uh, um so I, I had that as a background, um, a, a BS degree from North Dakota State University, <laughs> where they know a lot about BS, you know, <laughs> so, so well, versed. Um, but, you know, just basically the depth of, a, of a visual uh, exposure to the waveforms and mm -hmm. and the uh, training with uh, John Hughes and the Gibbs and yeah. Yep. Uh, you know, Charlie Yeager and uh, Dr. Shear, and uh, yeah, they're very, very high-level uh, EG interpretation, and uh, um, and high, you know density of exposure. Yeah, I remember uh, an email uh, chat list online, which I was uh, I had to kind of step away from those because uh, I, I I wouldn't let go of the, some. Uh, some conversations that didn't make sense. So yeah, no, there's some vitriol um, in those. In those and, old and, news you know, and at that point, I just you know that wasn't me, so I just had to just quit doing that. I remember somebody with an email, something about a salamander. Oh, that was probably me. Yeah, yeah. I was you know, I was very vocal on those early lists. Was, uh, yeah. And uh, you you uh, uh, interchanged with me and asked about grad schools where mm. you could do a neurofeedback uh, program uh, without getting kicked out of the university, you know, and I suggested Aaron Zidell uh, at UCLA uh, Frame Brain Lateralization Lab. Yep. So uh, um, I remember you back before you were the you that you are now, you know. That's right. 30, 25, 30 years, a while ago. I pre, forget exactly when that was. You. Yeah, yeah I, I could tell you a, a sharp uh, guy on the email list. You, uh, you were also one to try to drill down and you know, ask <laughs> the, you know, kind of the show me the data sort of a, a approach to, uh, uh, to some of the uh, posts. So, well, I mean, back then there was, I, I really described that, <clears throat> that time in the field of neurofeedback as a bunch of blind men and elephants, you know, everyone's describing something and, and proclaiming truth about Mars is the way and being in direct opposite. Yours can't work. This is how to do neurofeedback. This is how it works. People arguing yeah. back then about does sight on the head matter? Does frequency matter? This is why my part of my dissertation work was to to compare sights and frequencies yeah. active and sham to just like put a stake in that question once and for all. Yes, it matters. Yeah. Here it is. It's proven. But and, um, and Aaron Zidell's brain lateralization lab was the perfect spot to have done. It I mean, was where yeah, you know dichotic listening tests and and things that were available for for analysis that you know normal labs don't think like that you know so you know it, it also dovetailed i mean i was trained to do neurofeedback before grad school by dr larry hirschberg in providence yeah um, i know larry right right great in the field uh recently retired but larry had a big long history focused on developmental uh trajectory stuff autism and other types of developmental stuff with kids primarily and i was um Dr. Hirschberg was trained in this sort of arousal model of neurofeedback that sort of, I think, came out of my perspective, sort of uh, from the Offmers initially and some of that EEG, uh, yeah. was called neurocybernetics, sort of Beta, software SMR. Right, the arousal yeah. model. And when I took the arousal model, which was heavily relevant to spectrum development and kids and ADHD and things, when I took that and then I went into a laterality lab and I got my head around intended laterality and left and right. And I started to think about how we use, you know, beta in the left and SMR in the right and frequency specific hemisphere differences. And some of the, the clinical lore, the rules, the paintbrushes we've been taught to use started to coalesce. So yeah. I really, um, you know, I sat through, I also had the luxury of sitting through, um, I'm, I'm going to say it's a luxury that I did it twice, but I took two, I, I took the course twice with Arnie Scheibel on neuroanatomy. Yeah. Um, cause I didn't pass the first time, 
Uh, it was really hard, you know, medical student level neuroanatomy. And I went through it and almost, you know, got it and didn't quite get it and did it again and really it sunk in. But the mix of that like old school arousal model, the laterality model that Dr. Zidell helped really instill. I mean, I um, a lot of the tools that I used in my research on brains in general, on neurofeedback, I use something called the uh, LANT, the Lateralized Attention Network Task, which is a lateralized version of Dr. Posner's, Mike Posner's attention network task. So you're it's a flanker task. You're trying to predict the direction of an arrow, you know, say it's up or down or left or right, and there's some flankers, some distractors nearby. You're trying to predict something or or judge something with distractors that are incongruent to it or in conflict to it creates an executive conflict, which is a sort of prefrontal kind of thing. And Dr. Zidell took Posner's uh, ant, ANT, which was a horizontal line of arrows, flipped it vertically, made it in both hemispheres, and then made it a tactistoscope. So I have a very rapid presentation, and you can constrain the, the response hand by visual field, and now you can actually test attention systems in each hemisphere separately. So I started to think about the brain very differently once I got the ability to dig in and test modular resources. And, you know, this was dovetailing with, you know, I was working, of course, a little bit in that lab with Dr. Jack Johnstone, dear friend of both of ours who passed on a few years ago, also a great EEG. Yeah, uh, my business partner back, that, yeah. back then. Yeah. Um, and so Jack was teaching me a lot about this sort of endophenotype perspective on brains and EEG. And, you know, I was, that, I was learning that, to read. That was obviously our That was uh, you and, and yeah. uh, Jack and Joy, right? That, that first yeah. paper, I think. Yeah. Uh, 2005 endophenotype char clinical yeah. characterization of characterization of clinical databases. Yeah, I, I was talking about uh, 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 failure modes in the brain that were common, but mm. we hadn't put together that they were uh, probably endophenotypic until 2005. Uh, but for about four or five years before that, I had done the reverse look at the 500,000 or what I could recall of them. You know, uh, uh, I, I don't have the artificial intelligence. I just have this whole skin version, you know? So, uh, but having looked at that, I, these were the common patterns that I saw. Mm -hmm. And having uh, hung out in uh, clinical settings, what were the treatments that matched up with them? Because mm -hmm. if you had the same endophenotype, you got the same treatment approach. Not the DSM didn't make any freaking sense. It's a, you know obviously it's it's not valid anyway. So uh, we didn't really drive ourselves for treatment decisions based on the DSM. We used the EEG to guide us and uh, and cutting across the DSM. If you had the same EEG pattern, you got the same treatment basically. Mm -hmm. So uh, that that that's what we published uh, in the the. 2005, uh, with the insight that it was likely endophenotypic, there were two of the 11 patterns that were known uh, uh, genetic correlates. Mm -hmm. um, since then, obviously, the others have been filled in. So yeah. uh, uh, it wasn't a bad guess, you know. Uh, it, it absolutely wasn't. And I mean, I, I struggle with endophenotypes, the phenotypes in general, as a, as a thing that I work with every single day. And this is sort of getting to something I started to ask a minute ago. Um, 50 plus years working with EEG, I assume most of that, almost all of that, is with the lens, with the perspective of clinical uh, pathology, atypicality, problems being presented. Um, when I look at endophenotypes, you know, patterns that exist in the EEG across people, I find there are phenotypes that exist that aren't the clinical ones necessarily. Yeah. In, in fact, a, a phenotype, um, the, ex, the proportionality of the phenotype's expression is whether you're normal or clinical. You know, each phenotype, the, there is, the phenotypes exist in normal people and clinical people, the same pheno, phenotypes is just more severely expressed. And uh, that, that it's an easy, uh, uh, you, you reduce the, the proportionality of the Mahalanobis distance of the uh, three-dimensional data scatter and multivariate analysis. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you have less divergence, you're normal. If you have more divergence within that pattern, you're, you're clinical. And uh, uh, that, that that's an, an easy one to show.
that sort of opens the door for us here, right? Because we all have brains that are weird. Good job. Be weird. Like all of us are rather atypical. And when you show someone their atypicality, their, their endophenotypes, their anterior cingulate being extra hot could be perseverative and intrusive and obsessive, or it could be that they're a highly effective CEO who's highly organized and loves their mind. Well, the back midline could be a trauma response, or it could be a very effective lifeguard who's heavily skilled at it and doesn't seem to be threatened or, 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 or activated by their threat response yeah. stuff. So that I, that I struggle with day to day because I work with clients with acute clinical classic stuff. And I work with clients that are the highest performers squeezing the juice out of life and everything in between. And I find the same patterns in a person that walks in with no problems yeah, as well as somebody who's got severe dysregulation. And it's not a question of here's a thing that's wrong with you. It's a, here's a thing that's different in yeah. you. Would you like to work on it? Does it make sense to you? Is it valid? Because trying to interpret phenotypes, yes, the electricity pattern, the thing we can measure, the, the statistical thing that's hard to, you know, yeah. measure, uh, uh, clean away in some ways still sticks up. Those things don't always mean, mean interesting a, things a, for each person. A deviation could be abnormal, could be, could be a compensatory mechanism, and it could be a unique outlier state that the person has that as person. a special skill. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Gerard Finnamore in, in South Africa is uh, a, a brilliant guy. I've known him for a long, long time. I won't embarrass him the number. Uh, uh, but uh, he, he works with um, what you would consider extreme athletes. Mm. Um, uh, who runs those things that you run over two mountain ranges for six days or, you know, those crazy sure. races. Uh, who rose across the freaking Atlantic in a boat by themselves? Uh, the, the, these are his clients. Yeah, I have and, seen this too. Yeah. And don't you know that they have a singular that's just crazy? A lot of them. If, yeah. if they didn't, how the hell would they stay on task for those? Dr. Hill, I'm going to put a link to our... Uh, I'm going to put a link right here to the last show that we, we did with you about a couple of years ago. What has gone on with you since then? I see that you're opening up new lo locations. I see you have a moniker, the Magic Man, and you oh, have some, a oh, what some podcaster? That was her. <laughs> that was her experience. Her her judgment after working through it. I mean, a lot of people have this experience um, of getting agency, of understanding themselves a lot more after digging into looking at themselves, and that's that's what people find magical and this is also my sort of frustration with the field of neurofeedback it's all rather magical and none of it's any really more mysterious than anything else there is no magic box in neurofeedback there is no best particular approach there's understanding of the science and the physiology and gentle shaping and moving it but nobody has like the magic like there's no mystery tradition here that you have to be initiated into to really start digging in and only the right particular church will get it to you it's not how this stuff exists so yeah. we've been expanding Peak Brain Institute, which is really focused on a mix of classic neurofeedback and, and peak performance stuff. We have four offices now in the U.S. and we're opening up as well uh, in Europe. So in the U.S. we have New York City, which just expanded, St. Louis, uh, L.A. and Orange County, California, each have offices. Um, and then we're in, we're in London now, too. So uh, how Stockholm. Do you, how, do you keep, how do you keep control of all of that? Well, I, I have a perspective on brain training that is not a therapist. I mean, a lot of my colleagues who my mentors, people have taught me they're, they're mostly therapists and they tend to have a roster of clients of patients that are 20 clients, 30 clients, and they see them for a mix of therapy and neurofeedback typically. And almost everyone I know in the field um, has a population of interest because they started off doing autism or eating disorders or anxiety or trauma and then discovered neurofeedback as a lovely tool set, or they, they started to specialize because of the change they could help uh, shepherd in a particular area. They really found it fulfilling. Um, I uh, don't do that piece of it. I don't, I don't narrowly niche down. And I also don't work in the role of a therapist for you. So without being a therapist, without working to have to create the complete transference container, that safety container where 
you're sort of allowing a therapist to create some, you know, some agency and reexamine things and provide a, 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 a mixed perspective that is the therapeutic process to sort of unlearn and relearn things. That's a pretty vulnerable place to be. And it takes a lot of management of clinical boundaries. And there is this transference, this, this re relationship you develop with the person and their agency. And Peak Brain instead operates like a bunch of personal trainers and coaches we're here to thrust agency back up on you and teach you how your brain works. So, you know, we see about 10 times as many clients, I think, as, as the average uh, neurofeedback solo practitioner. And we do that because I teach people to read their brain maps. We don't write these long, exhaustive, here's a bunch of labels and here's things that could be true about you. Diagnostic level reports, we instead say, oh, cool, data, uh, CPT, brain maps, let's dig in, let's look at some stuff, let's teach you the neurocognitive exercise of putting physiology, behavior, and contrast, and seeing what's outlined about your resources, and teach you how this stuff works. And okay, there's your brain. What do you want to do? And so we can take the the stuff that is clinical when it exists: executive function stuff, anxiety features, sleep, post-COVID brain fog, seizures, migraines, whatever. And you can work on those things from a resource perspective. If I talk to you about your anterior cingulate and its tendency perhaps to perseverate being plausible based on your maps. And you're like, oh my God, yes. Actually, somebody gave me an OCD diagnosis. Oh, wow, I'm sorry you deal with that. It's so annoying. Here's the physiology probably. Would you like to work on that? So, you know, I, I don't have to de uh, deny other people's diagnostic language, but I'm not really, I don't really care if you're a high-powered CEO who's mostly good at hyper-focusing, but can't turn it off and be nice to your partner when you get home. Or if you're like somebody who's, compulsively hand-washing or somebody who uh, just has a song stuck in your head. If you tend to perseverate and the, and the anterior cingulate is stuck for you, well, that's true for you. You know, you know how you feel. So you can now learn the physiology, take control of it. And that, that thrusting of agency, that educational, that piercing that mystery a little bit by showing someone their brain map, I think really helps to offload in some ways some of the burden of doing neurofeedback traditionally. I mean, a lot of therapists struggle to continue to maintain a perspective on how their clients' brains are changing. Clients aren't super con uh, uh, compliant with sleep surveys and personal inventories right. and things day to day. You'd spend a lot of time catching up on that sort of a bug of neurofeedback. And we made it a feature. We teach you to do neurofeedback if you're a client. I mean, about 80% of our clients work from home with equipment and we just teach you to do it. We have live support staff and live coaches to jump on and help you and teach you and suggest new things. But um, the big benefit, even before folks do neurofeedback with us, uh, especially if you're near an office, is that we provide this sort of membership model for brain mapping. So people pay one time and they come throughout the year and learn to use mapping and attention testing as a tool. So I'm in California with offices in New York, you know, cannabis is legal in those states. And I can't tell you the number of maps I've seen pre and post cannabis or Adderall or caffeine or biohackers, you know, looking at their different nootropic stacks, examining how their cognitive stuff works or folks that have gotten COVID and have post COVID examining the degree of brain fog or the post concussion stuff that got reactivated by their new ski trip. When you can see this stuff and you can see it shift in numbers and you can relate it to how you're feeling, you can start shifting your relationship with aspects of suffering and places where you aren't performing. You can be as annoyed and as frustrated as you want to be looking at a broken shoulder on an x-ray. You're probably not going to be ashamed or overwhelmed quite the right. same way when you're like, oh my God, that thing, it's so annoying. Yeah, don't tolerate it. Oh, empathy, frustrating. Uh, but it's just your brain in this case. You can see it. You can change it. And I tell people that, look, if you see stuff on a QEG, QEGs are hard to interpret a little bit. People are weird. But if you see something that is valid for you, great. Because you can almost always change something in a data set. Of course, it only matters to you if it's valid, right. if it really matters to you. But you know, if you see it, you have agency. So that's that's sort of our soapbox. And that with the network of physical offices, we also do remote uh, programs is creating a different relationship, I think, with the field of neurofeedback, because a lot of our clients are not just doing, oh, I got to fix something, but they're learning to understand themselves and moving through even years sometimes of mapping progressively, trying different life interventions, doing some neurofeedback and you know, transforming across uh, a long time, hopefully. So, 
artificial intelligence is that coming into play the chat gpt jay and i have been going back and forth over the last couple of weeks jay's a big pro proponent of ai oh yeah it's um, gonna i mean we've we've just discovered fire we don't i don't think we, we quite know yet what it can do uh, all we know is it can burn things we don't we don't know yet it can cook gourmet meals like we're, we're at that level oh my god someone got burned yeah but peking duck like we, the, there's a whole other end of the use of the technology we have to get to as it elaborates um, of course, the big constraint here is that these, especially natural language model uh, or deep deep language model systems are um, only really, really good when they are constrained very, very narrowly in the questions and are trained on a very narrow data set. So to get them to do the skilled stuff we do is going to take a minute because the amount of judgments you have to capture and then train the system on and map data sets you have to provide for the subsequent training are, are a little bit, you know, there's some stuff that has to happen first, but um, I've got a database of 5,000 clients more. I, I forget when I put the new charting system in that I last used, but it's, it captures um, peak brain, peak brain, the current entities been around for seven and a half years. Like I have six years of decision-making captured. Every yeah. protocol, all the surveys, every every attention test, every brain map in this massive data set. Now, if I can figure out how to constrain chat GPT, four or five, whatever, auto GPT, um, I can sort of say, look, here's the questions we wanna ask. Here's the ways we've answered in the past. I think going back to the old school machine learning of training models, model fitting, that's going to come together with the amazing natural language stuff and the inferential reasoning and the genetic learning where you can tell it to learn to do stuff and give it very imprecise and have it do federated GPTs where it sends other GPTs out to do stuff. Amazing. But we're going to need the other piece of it, which is the old school machine learning model fitting the learning and intelligence against the domain expertise we already have. You can't take domain expertise and put it in these models. That's the big issue. Well, do you think that, that? Do you think that your five th look ChatGPT is open source? Okay, it, could there be an open source? I I know there's a few people that are doing it, but all the scans that you do, you take the identifiers off and you put it in one place, and everybody has access to it. Do you think we can be organized to figure out where somebody doesn't? I know sure. everybody wants to make a profit. Everybody wants to be proprietary, but. 500,000 is bigger than 5,000, right? Yeah, no, I I mean, sure. Uh, although I, I bet Jay would agree, you don't need 500,000 to approach normal variability. You need about 10 to 100,000, depending on what you're looking at. So um, sure, absolutely. It, and we're doing that basic science question thing you're asking. That's asking about science, about how brains work. That's useful. But I think the exciting thing is the next step. And that's the intelligent agent that is yeah. a model of you that interacts in, in with fact, interventions. You probably would need somewhere around five hundred thousand. Do you think to approach a wild type? You don't need it as one group. You need it uh, randomized into two groups so that you can validate what you find in one group independently ah. on a, a on the second group. Yeah. Uh, the, without that validation step, you you could be up a box canyon then and not be aware of it. Uh, so. The, uh, the one of the difficulties in neuroscience is replicability. Yeah. And uh, we, we've got to provide that. Um, and uh, you, you're right, about 100, maybe 200,000, something such as that may be sufficient to generally characterize uh, the, the broad distribution, but categorization within that as clinical categorization, epilepsy, uh, um, bipolar, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, 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 the clinical observations, which are some of which are quite valid. Uh, and and, and uh, the epilepsy spectrum is, I think, uh, a concept that needs to be uh, included because uh, autism and ADD and, you know, the, the high percentage of uh, epileptiform content that you see in these clinical groups. So uh, the the uh, a few hundred thousand can characterize the normal distribution fairly well, but uh, um, the, the the clinical clusters are going to have to be identified. That's that's some handholding of the algorithm, uh, uh, some management basically. 
But once what you've got that done, once yeah. you've got that done one time, you have to uh, you have to run that um, uh, on your independent uh, sample and, uh, and and validate it basically. Yeah. Join us at the seventh annual Super Brain Summit at Bradley University Center for Collaborative Brain Research. It's featuring speaker Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor. She's the author of The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Our Love and Loss. If you want to get more information regarding registration, contact Gwen Hoarter. She's at G-H-O-W-A-R-T-E-R at Bradley.edu or call her at 309-677-3900. If you want more information regarding programming, you can contact Dr. Lori Russell Chapin herself at 309-677-3186 or email lar at bradley.edu. One of the ideas I have around that, and, and part of where I'm getting my 10,000 to 100,000 number from, is I think we can take the, the data model, the conceptual model of QEEG, and make it uh, add a dimension of time into it. So if we had wellness trackers for the brain, where some people are tracking their sleep, their stress, their seizures, their migraines, their mood, how angry their mother-in-law made them, whatever, their drinking, their exercise, and we have a longitudinal set of variability per person, with some snapshots against their normal variability within one person. Now QEG has a different metric. I believe that amount of intra-individual variability captured with context will take that number of 200,000 and cut it down to, I think the power analysis will show that it's like 20,000 now in terms of wild type, because you're getting, you're getting the seizure incidents that happens every so often across six weeks. You're getting the recurrent migraine patterns, and there's going to be a lot more contextual data. I think we will be able to reduce the need to keep QEGs clean. I want someone to walk in, sit down, do a brain map, walk out, and then, okay, they they reported having caffeine before and they smoked weed last night. Oh, and they have um some sort of like, you know, bis and bass spectrum, you know, some, some sort of anxiety stuff they're reporting. Okay, great. So now with this atypical characterization, now we can have a sort of regression mean through a set of normal typical data or, 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 or um, uh, examine the variants around human populations, but with the context of how people themselves vary, which is a thing we actually have to sort of control out in QEG, come in the morning, no caffeine, not super tight. You know, there's a bunch of constraints to get valid EEG data now. And I think we're going to be able to, to eliminate those at some point and have fatigued and stressed and medicated EEG and be able to look right through that and make judgments. I think that's coming. How do we get more, more data? If you have 5,000, we need 100,000, whatever the number is, do you think it's possible to get everybody together and say, all right, we'll make our own, we'll spend 600 bucks like Stanford, make our own yeah. AI. Sure. And well, who, sure. who do we and it's get coming. together? I'm sure someone's already doing it. Um, yeah. Again, the thing that I'm much and, more interested and, in is Emma, the next Aitken step. at Stanford actually separated from Stanford into a private entity that was funded. Um, and they're doing an AI scrubbing, trying to replace psychiatry with, uh, you know, uh, biomarkers. And uh, the uh, uh, Stanford gave them thirty-seven thousand EGs that were already uh, cleaned up and digitized. And the problem was that these are all epilepsy cases and encephalopathy cases because that's what you use the EG for clinically. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. the the data is not sufficient to characterize psychiatry. This is what I'm uh, saying. And, we need uh, to think about brains as normal variability and, and we need to all be examining our brains just like we look at our lipid panels. You know, it's just a part of your physiology that you manage. It's not so much about pathology is my take on it, but you're right. Well, Blood pressure. I mean, you go, I just got back from my physical. It's like, you know, here's, here's the baseline. How do you compare over the years? People have to get in that frame of mind, pardon the pun that, you know, Above your neck, you have to keep an eye on what's going on there as well. Yeah, and you can't feel it, ironically. So, you know. Well, insurance doesn't it, it, pay. It, it, that's, that's I don't true, even let them test me anymore. Really? <laughs> People that are on steroids and stuff. So, oh, yeah, right. Uh, right, right. You know, the, show me a norm that I'm appropriate, you know? So, yeah. But wouldn't you find it useful? Like if you had a data point that was distorted by your experience, your suffering, some medication, et cetera, you would understand how that data point being distorted, what it meant. Like it would provide agency for you as somebody who's educated, can interpret subtle data. 
why don't we all have that capability there's, of you know, there's a reason that i've lasted over 30 years and they have an average life expectancy of less than 10 uh for no pituitary you know and, and it's, what's the reason it's, it's difficult to stay alive with no pituitary. I'll tell you that. I didn't both, hear both anterior and posterior pituitary. Yeah, yeah, the whole thing's gone. Wow. So your brain has yeah, very, yeah, very my... poor timing. Very poor. <laughs> I get a new doctor and they 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 have a clean clipboard, nothing on it, and and and, and Mr. G, you know, the joke on the last name. What are you here for? Well, renew my meds. Well, what are you on? I start to list my meds, and they about five meds down the list, they say, well, what do you have? And I say, it's not what I have, it's what I don't have. I don't have a pituitary. And the clipboard and the jaw drop at about the same time. <laughs> you know, that's, yeah, they're, yeah. they're linked together somehow, some reflex. I don't know what it is. Uh, but what do we do for you? Well, renew my meds. <laughs> and, and you might want to find a specialist who might know what to do for me. Uh, but they, they don't really exist. You yeah, know, this a, a neuroendocrinologist, yeah. a neuroendocrinologist that are able to do better than what I've been doing don't exist. So um, that, that doing what they do, you have a half a chance of living 10 years, you know, so. Well, I can't imagine there's a large practice space for those doctors to operate in, in, in this particular yeah. complaint. So, you know, I, I take my medications, essentially all PRN. And okay. these are not meds that are prescribed PRM, uh, steroids uh, and, and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, they, <laughs> the, uh, uh, I was complying perfectly with the prescriptions and they couldn't get normal blood levels. And I, I, I told them, well, let me take them the way I want and I give you normal blood levels. They said, well, there's no way for you to tell your uh, cortisol level. Uh, hydrocortisone, you know, steroids that you're eating. I said, well, yes, there is. You know, I've damaged myself over the years. I cut these fingers off and had them sewn back on. I've got a wrist that's had six surgeries, got bad knees, broken back twice, uh, busted up ribs. I, I, I'm a total freaking mess. When I feel pain in all of those, I'm not on enough steroids. Yeah, inflammatory stuff, yeah. And if I can't feel any of them. Now I have earned the right to feel some pain. So if I can't feel any of them, I'm on too much steroid. And I, I, I don't have a normal life. I used to fly internationally or I was sitting at home on the computer for three, four weeks at a time. So I didn't have a normal lifestyle. And here you are, your pituitary, if you change the level of life stress, shifts the levels around the cortisol level will shift based on what is what's needed uh, as an anti-inflammatory for yourself mm -hmm. uh, and, and to control your immune system and, and blood sugar no, and circadian and yeah, yeah and and with no uh, uh <laughs> no uh, you could you could slam it with doses a couple of times a day uh it, standard doses didn't match up with a non-standard life so as soon as i started taking a prn i gave them normal blood levels and uh, they Amazing. they couldn't you know understand they basically said okay take it however you want but you know <laughs> the, don't don't tell don't tell anybody you know uh, it it I, I've made it thirty years uh, and way past any estimate that they would have given me. So, well, we're, su we're super glad you've been continuing to share your yeah. your, your Janus with it with with us all. So I'm I'm still having too much fun to pass. That's all. <laughs> that's great the devil doesn't want you so doc <laughs> so dr hill i i hear you got uh some new podcast episodes coming up what what you got cooking yeah we have some new podcast episodes i had a podcast called head first with dr hill that's available on all the podcast places apple and and youtube etc we'll and right uh it's you put a link in the in the corner great um, and head first, we sort of went fallow during the pandemic. We, you know, reduced our, uh, we changed our office a lot, you know, pre-pandemic, we were sort of this really vibrant seven day a week, 12 hour a day gym with a couple locations. And now we are more locations, but they're smaller and 80% of our clients work from home. So it's got this very different kind of, uh, phenomena attached to it in terms of how clients work with us. Um, but as we're starting to do more with uh, meditation groups and client outreach and stitching together this worldwide network of, of both gyms and clients, 
we're relaunching podcasts and things like that. So um, head first to Dr. Hill will be, I think the new episodes will start rolling out next month. We have a couple of big guests. I think Wim Hof is one of our first guests coming out uh, as uh, as a as a show we're producing right now. And I think it'll be a weekly podcast. Uh, okay. Push to all the podcast places. So folks, please subscribe. You can check me out at uh, Andrew Hill PhD. You can check out Peak Brain at Peak Brain LA. And I think my YouTube is just Dr. Hill, D-R-H-I-L-L. So come check us out. What what are people yeah. wanting to, to, to consume nowadays? What do they want to know? Yeah. Um, I find the stuff that people want to know is always very, you know, personal and it tends to constellate around the same types of phenomena. Um, I mean, this is sort of getting back to the idea that if we understand ourselves, we can take more control. I mean, Jay has a strategy with managing his cortisol that works for him because he understands it adequately and he, he manages better than most people, better than doctors do in this instance. And I find people, when they understand that their alpha waves are running slow, and that's why they have word-finding issues. It's probably not aging at 55. Oh, your alpha speeds are all over the place, and your delta's, you're not sleeping great, and you're having speed of processing. So they, they often go, oh, okay, wait a minute, that's happening. So when we start to distill things down to how some individual person's brain works, not just like the phenotypes cohere in the data sets from our scientific and clinical perspective, but the experiences start to cohere for individuals. They start understanding how their, their sleep management or lack thereof is impacting them or they're eating before beds impacting them or their working night shift throws them off or their, you know, ski vacations, they keep getting concussed on. I, I find people start to really become laser focused on stuff that they sort of already know but becomes this, you know, how do I change that? How do I make change? Can I, can I go after that? I also find people are often a little bit scared until they realize that brain mapping is this tool. They're often like, I don't want to know. I can't, you know, but well, well, you can change it. Oh, I can change it. Okay. I want to know. So people generally want to know whatever it is they suffer from the most sleep, stress, or attention are often big foundational things that they're curious about. Oh my, I'm different. I'm unique in this way. Can you help me take control of it is often how people lead their uh, investigations. So your model is, is a bit unique uh, in that you've got uh, coaching and general health and wellness orientation and kind of an eclectic set of tools, uh, hyperbaric and, you know, various uh, 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 diet and, you know, lo lots of approaches. And this is not, um, a medical office. This is a general health and wellness and coaching. Right. And uh, it, it's, it's not a clinical model, uh, but it's, it's a model that essentially uh, 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 coaches and uh, coaxes uh, the person in, in a, a direction that may be helpful for them. Yeah, we thrust uh, agency upon you and teach you what you might want to yeah. do and give you best practices and then check back with you. We don't, yeah. you know, give you the answer necessarily. And it, it's probably a, a good idea to have an affiliated medical uh, 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 associate that can end up handling uh, the the findings that will obviously come up right. uh, where you see a dramatic clinical abnormality in the EEG, which right. you can't call because it's not your, uh, you, you don't have that bib on the hat, you know? Right, so right, right. Um, uh, ha having a doc uh, on at your beck and call uh, to uh, to handle cases like that and is is quite useful. Yeah, we, we generally find we have to navigate non, you know, coaching type things for a lot of people. And that may mean we're working with someone's neurologist and providing data, or we're working with someone's therapist, helping them look yeah. at an attention test. Yeah. And um, even though we're not medical and we don't have that clinical perspective, that psychological clinical necessarily, you know, uh, legal and medical oversight, we do refer out to those sorts of things. If we see things that are unusual or we think, you know, I, yeah. I, I can't tell you the number of people that I send out to have their neck image in like a nuca practice because they've had a car accident. You know, if there's musculoskeletal things, I can't diagnose them for you, but I can say, oh, hey, 
I think you may be experiencing something that a provider in this landscape really needs to take a check, you know, look at, yeah. hear somebody. And we have those relationships in all of our physical offices. You know, we have a few doctors, a few, you know, specialists in each area. But yeah, it is something we we manage. And one of the ways I've been able to get away from having to manage that is because people often find neurofeedback. It's a niche. So they often find it yeah. late in their experience of, of addressing their goals. So by the time I've gotten somebody with a severe trauma history or a lot of seizures or major autism, they have a deeply skilled relationship with this clinical stuff. And they know yeah. how they know how their meds work and they have their team and they have, you know, they're kind of over their talk therapy or not or whatever. And it's just like you managing your own medication, PRN. People come in and I'm okay to work with you if you have a clinical diagnosis, but I'm, I'm not the clinician for you. Yeah. So sometimes it's a little bit of like the, Hey, there's a, there's a severity here. I think that you should probably see your doctor for of this yeah. flavor, but it's very I'm similar to what I've been doing. And, you know, I work with uh, patients that have epilepsy and I'm not a neurologist, so I can't treat epilepsy, but I can train somebody who has epilepsy, how to operate their brain optimally and work with the neurologist or epileptologist who's managing their case, because I never work you know, behind the scenes without their knowledge. Right. Um, and, and at that point, uh, the doctor's managing the, the, they're treating the seizures. I'm just teaching to optimize brain function. And when the seizures go away, uh, and you know, we've, we've got good experience that that's what's going to happen. Yep. The meds will be pulled because the right. doctor doesn't want you on meds if you're not having seizures. Absolutely. Uh, and, and you end up with seizure-free medication-free. And we just published another uh, uh, case like that in uh, neuroregulation. Mm. Uh, yeah, the, 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 the patient uh, just graduated with honors from Baylor. And she wanted to be able to do lectures about intractable epilepsy and neurofeedback and uh, and life outcomes and as a motivational speaker. And she wanted her case to actually be published. So uh, Rusty Turner, myself, Sue Wilson, uh, the, the, the treatment team uh, basically ended up um, getting it written up in great detail, uh, uh, medication seizure-free for like seven years. And now she, she had a division one tennis scholarship, uh, four years Dean's list. Um, and now she's graduated and, and, uh, uh, has this publication that just came out last month, um, uh, as, as, a uh, basically a validation of her clinical case story, basically. Link so, to the show will be right here, and 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 it it's is uh, Isabella is the, the the patient's name, and uh, her her uh, case was astounding. Mm -hmm. um, actually, had a little bit of neurofeedback in the U.S. before her family moved to Barcelona, uh, where uh, as a young uh, preteen she started to have intractable seizures and. Um, the, the EG done in the United States actually showed the seizure activity uh, in the temporal lobe. Um, the, the neurologist and neurosurgeon in Barcelona wanted to remove her right temporal lobe uh, to control the intractable epilepsy. Mm. They chose to do neurofeedback and quit meds. And uh, they were told that that would kill their daughter. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously she's bloomed uh, really quite well. Uh, uh, this one thing to be seizure-free, med-free for seven years, it's another thing to have graduated with honors, <laughs> mm -hmm. a tennis scholarship. So it's amazing. She, she, she uh, didn't just escape epilepsy. She bloomed uh, in a, yeah. in a major way, uh, an impressive young lady. So. That's wonderful. Of course, I've seen some similar things across the decade or, or 22 yeah. years I've been doing neurofeedback, but um in terms of medication management, that I, I find the same thing that happens. Antidepressants, anti-seizure meds, you sort of bring the floor up to meet the person and then the meds take care of themselves with the doctor and the client. Great. I yeah. find I have to be a little bit more pointed with my advice with psychostimulants and people that use cannabis because almost always 
somewhere around three to five weeks in, the tolerance to stimulants and the tolerance to cannabis gets abolished out of nowhere. And the person's like getting three, four or five times the subjective impact suddenly from those drugs. And it can get in the way and cause problems behaviorally or, you know, psychologically like, oh my God, I can't get off the couch. I'm too stoned. Or my, my kid is super irritable, won't sleep or eat right now. Oh, maybe that Adderall is, you know, they need a different dose now, essentially. So I sort of warn parents of kids that are taking stimulants and I warn people that are, you know, chronic stoners like, well, you know, look, a couple of weeks in, you're probably going to start getting potentiated effects as you uh, get more sensitive. So that's a yeah. thing you may have to manage, maybe make an appointment with your doctor and you know, ask for a, a refill that's got extra amount of half the dose or come up with a strategy for that drug maybe. Because in my experience, you're probably going to be very sensitive to these medications in a few yeah. weeks. When your consciousness becomes clear, the effects of these things are notable. Uh, when you're all clouded, it's hard to spot these things. You know, and uh, as you as you clear people's uh, consciousness it, it's it's astounding uh, how sensitive they can be to stuff that they were they just absolutely uh, were oblivious to previously yeah yeah so i'm, I'm going to try and, to get you know a... that it, 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 if you if you look at the literature smr training for instance uh, you can look at a visual event related potential and look at the size of the potential that you're evoking and get an idea of how much recruitment the visual stimuli is getting. If you do SMR, the size of the visual stimulus yeah. jumps up. You've By removed way. some somatosensory interference. And, and so as you control the, the inner level of noise, you can see signals that you couldn't see before. Uh, you can feel effects that were just part of the background cloud before, but now you, they're obvious. And that's a know? plasticity effect too, right? There's yeah. the ME, there's the motor evoke potential work that shows that one session of SMR creates a much lower threshold of activation to create the hand jumping when you give the brain a little magnetic pulse, uh, a certain threshold yep. to activate that. But after a single session, the threshold's way reduced. So it's not just clearing information it's making the system more sensitive more plastic more changeable yeah. i think in general so dr hill jay is it true i've heard that the stoners out there the boozers out there once they've done neurofeedback some people have lost the taste for their drug of their of, of their choice is that true it is true not just alcohol and weed people often depending on what you're doing to the brain people can lose the taste for cravings for sugar as well what, what the hell is happening? Why? As you clear the brain, you, you don't need substances. Um, uh, we, we basically did a research project on 30 addicted individuals uh, of, of a wide variety of different substances. But we found that there were two primary drive mechanisms towards addiction, over-arousal, which had three EG patterns, fast alpha, which is over arousal, low voltage fast, which is over arousal, and beta spindles, which are over arousal. If you had over arousal, alpha theta was part of your future as a therapeutic intervention. Mm. Uh, and, and the alpha theta people, when when you get rid of the drive towards the uh, towards the substance and you're exposed to the substance, it's quite often something that you have a, a bad reaction to. There's no, there's no more reason. You've taken away the drive. In psychology, read the books. You get rid of the drive, you're supposed to get rid of the behavior associated with the drive, aren't you? you know, well, if you really get rid of the drive, that's what happens. The other third of the addicted population had an anterior cingulate drive, obsessive. not an over-arousal. They had an obsessive compulsive drive. Yeah. And if you if you don't fix that, you end up with the uh, symptom substitution. If they're clean and sober, they're going to find something else to be locked onto. Um, but, it, it, you know, they, uh, you, you can end up uh, getting rid of the drive. And at that point, the behavior associated with the addiction uh, goes away. 
you know, the uh, old rat park uh, example where when, when rat park is fun, the rats play in the park, but when rat park is empty, they just, you know, do cocaine all day instead. Yeah. So, and uh, to their detriment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They'll do drugs until they die. And, and if you give them an enriched environment, they, they have a life as opposed to just do the drugs. I mean, that's, that's true for the, the mechanisms, over arousal, impulsivity, obsessiveness. But I honestly think it's a lot simpler than that. Most addictive stuff is driven by learning. Neurofeedback changes learning. So you can shape the direction you go in and change your stuck patterns of reinforcement. Yeah. yeah. Foundationally, the, the, the neuroplasticity principle is what allows you to get out of the, 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 the drive mechanism that you're being driven towards something uh, with. You. You're, after all, who's in control? Do we have strings coming up? Uh, is there a master puppeteer up there, you know, dangling us, uh, controlling our behavior? Uh, no, we, you know, we're 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 self, we're autonomic, um, and uh, we, we get to name ourselves. We're uh, we're, we're self-regulating, and but sometimes, it, <laughs> <laughs> well, even when we're not uh, aware of what we're doing, we're still doing it ourselves. Right. Right. Even when involuntary, it's still self. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's good to see you, Andrew, and oh, uh, and you as well, Jay. Of course, and it's good to see uh, um, uh, a referral to Aaron's uh, lab turn out so uh, obviously <laughs> uh, successful. So, well, thank uh, you. It was a great, amazing experience working with Dr. Zidel, uh, working with Dr. Uh, Johnstone, J uh, Jack. Yeah. Uh, going formal defeated me for a second. Doctors Zydell and Johnstone and other folks that I got just a huge, rich, uh, you know, just as a as a, an aside, you mentioned when I first reached out that I had, I was like, how do I get a degree in this without, you know, getting laughed out of the interview process, essentially. And I found when I was interviewing for grad school, people were like rolling their eyes when the word biofeedback was brought up. But about two, three years into grad school, all these really, really senior scientists at different departments in UCLA were like, oh, you're the, you're the neurofeedback guy. Ooh, I have a cool test suite you might want to use in your research. So I think there's been a sea yeah. change yeah. of legitimacy as the tech space evolves. And I think that's yeah. giving not just scientists and clinicians more agency to learn and do, but individuals you know, becomes much more approachable over time. To a large extent, I think that's also been leveraged by international neuroscience, uh, not having the pejorative associated with neurofeedback. But basically, using their feedback as a as a, a manipulant, um, uh, uh, we, we brought in uh, scientists from uh, Salzburg University, Salzburg Blemish's lab, and that their exposure to the concept of neurofeedback uh, suddenly put neurofeedback into their experiments. Uh, so yeah. uh, you get people doing PhD dissertation work with neurofeedback as the tool that they're using. Uh, so the number of labs in Europe went from Tübingen basically being almost the only one yep, yep, uh, to, yeah. to suddenly having uh, Salzburg and um, uh, there, there's a Spanish society, there's an Italian society, uh, there's a Society for Applied Neuroscience for Europe. Um, uh, England's got its own uh, little group as well. I mean, the, it's flourished internationally. And don't even start to talk about it in in, in Asia. I mean, uh, goodness gracious, the Koreans have uh, done fabulous work, uh, a, a complete database, dry headset. Um, they're doing uh, AI scrubbing of the data to predict myocognitive impairment and uh, dementia. They've got a whole bunch of other uh, uh, discriminant uh, uh, features uh, being built at this point with AI. So um, yeah, internationally, it's just exploded. And it, it's not like you, you have a, a pejorative against neurofeedback internationally at all. And there's still a little hangover in the US. Um, yeah. that I still have to apologize for the early hippie reputation that was me, you know? So uh, our whole field was dismissed as a bunch of hippies and that, you know, the. Yeah. Well, you've redeemed yourself. I think you've, my, you've, my you've, apologies, you've, you know, you've come a long way. So, so 
Yeah. All we need is a few more podcasts out there. Get the word going. <laughs> drip, drip, drip. Dr. Andrew Hill, Jay Gunkelman, thank you for coming on the Neural Noodle Podcast. My pleasure, guys. Take care of those brains. Oh, yeah. Bye-bye. The Neuro Noodle Podcast is supported by listeners and businesses just like you. Like our gold supporter, the 7th Annual Super Brain Summit at Bradley University, and our silver supporter, Mind Media. Join us at the 7th Annual Super Brain Summit at Bradley University Center for Collaborative Brain Research. It's featuring speaker Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor. She's the author of The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Our Love and Loss. If you want to get more information regarding registration, contact Gwen Hoarter. She's at G-H-O-W-A-R-T-E-R at bradley.edu or call her at 309-677-3900. If you want more information regarding programming, you can contact Dr. Lori Russell Chapin herself at 309-677-3186 or email lar at bradley.edu. Mindmedia.com. Get the latest EEG and neurofeedback technology from mindmedia.com. Their semi-dry sensor cap is a wonder to see and their EEG amplifiers have been trusted in the field for decades. Their neurofeedback and QEEG courses will get you up to speed in no time. Visit mindmedia.com now.